Last week we considered um, Luke's Christmas story, and in Luke's Christmas story he asks the question, who is Lord? The uh, Romans said Caesar is Lord, Christians said Jesus is Lord, they both can't be right. And so looking back from 2,000 years of perspective, we know that the Christians were right. Jesus is Lord, he's still on his throne, he still is alive and reigns today. Matthew, we're going to look at today, his Christmas story, and he has a little bit different perspective. Matthew wants to know who is king. See, Matthew is a Jew writing to a Jewish audience, and Matthew starts off with this lineage that traces Jesus through, uh, through Joseph all the way back to King David. In the Old Testament, King David was promised by God that you will always have an heir who will reign on the throne forever. And Jesus Christ is that heir, and so he's proven to that through, uh, through Matthew's uh, lineage that he traces, and then he's asking this big question that we're going to come back to over and over today. Who is your king? And Jesus' birth that we're celebrating in a couple of weeks really messed up the world. He brought in a new kind of kingdom. You see, all the Jews, if you read the Old Testament, if you, if you look at any of the history of the Jews, they believed that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that was talked about in the Old Testament would have the baddest army. He would come and he would tear up the kingdom and the Jews would live in peace. That's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. But his first coming, he came and he, he established a different kind of kingdom. One that doesn't go along with um, what humans normally think. And in fact, when Jesus was being questioned by Pilate, right before he uh, was going to die on the cross, Jesus said this, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is bigger than this world. Jesus came to conquer not just the seen world, but also the unseen world. And so the birth of Jesus reminds us that things are not always as they seem. And last week we started asking the question, what did things seem like at the time of Jesus? Caesar ruled the world, and we have a picture of his kingdom. He ruled 3,000 miles worth of kingdom. Go ahead and put that up there. Everything that's in color is what Caesar was uh, in charge of. Now, if you have a kingdom this large, how do you take care of a kingdom that, that spans over 3,000 miles? This is the problem with conquering the known world. How do you keep people in line if it takes you nine months to get someplace? Well, fortunately, we have historians that have told us how they did it. They would find a dude in, in a country and they would say, hey, you rule for us. You do what we say and you can be the leader, the king of that country. If you don't do what we say, we will kill you and everyone in your family. So at the time of Jesus, uh, just before Jesus was born, a few years before he was born, who is the king? Herod. Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the king at this time. And they found this guy. He was part Edomite. He was part Jew. If you know anything about Jewish history, if you have someone who's a partial Jew who is the king, does that make you happy? No, I'll answer that one for you. You want someone who is all the way Jew. Well, who made him king? Caesar Augustus made him king. Now, he had started as the governor of the region. He had proven himself. This was one of the slickest politicians ever. He kissed up to everyone who was in charge, so he finally got to be king. And uh, Caesar Augustus said, you can be king as long as you do what I want. So he's the puppet king of Caesar. Now, here's what he was like. Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian, said Herod besieged Jerusalem in 37 B.C. with a huge army of 11 battalions of infantry and 6,000 cavalry. 
When the troops poured in, a scene of wholesale massacre ensued. For the Jews of Herod's army were determined to leave none of their opponents alive. Masses were butchered in the alleys, crowded together in houses. Kind of sounds like a guy that would get along with Caesar. We talked about Caesar, what he, how crazy he was last week. So he spent the rest of his life slaughtering Jews and honoring Caesar. And when I say honoring Caesar, I mean this guy was the biggest suck-up in history. Josephus said this, the, the historian said, In short, one can mention no suitable spot in the realm which he left destitute of some mark of his homage to Caesar. In other words, you can't go anywhere in Herod's kingdom that he hasn't built something. Altars, temples, statues, cities, you name it, he built it to Caesar. And in a land where the first commandment is to worship only God and not to worship things made with human hands. And Caesar's building all these tributes to someone who is not God and telling people that they need to worship Caesar. What do you think the Jews thought about Herod? They hated him. Now, on top of that, Herod has this enormous ego. There is a legend that circulating that when David, you remember David from the Old Testament, the one who killed Goliath, the one who became a king, the one who destroyed all of the Philistines. He did all of these things. When he united the kingdom and all of that, he ran for his life before he became king from King Saul. King Saul was jealous because he knew that he was going to lose his kingdom, so he tries to kill David. The legend says that David um, goes to this place called Masada. We have a picture of this. Put that, that picture up there if you would. Now, before anything was there, the legend says that David hid out in one of the caves up here on Masada. It looks like a pretty good hiding place if you're talking, if you're asking me. Saul would chase him around the countryside. He would hide in caves so that he wouldn't be killed by Saul. Saul uh, so now Herod comes along and he says, okay, if your greatest king hid out in fear on top of Masada, you know what I'm going to do there? I'm going to build a palace there. I'm, if your greatest king was hiding in fear, I'm going to live in luxury there. So we have a couple more pictures. Put up the next one, Miriam. This is an artist, artist rendering. It's a three-story palace that he built on the side of this hill. Do the next picture. There's another one. You can see how it goes up, and you can see how that one uh, looks a little better. One more. Now, he spared no expense for this thing. This is a picture of a marble floor. It's not a painting on the floor. He inlaid marble everywhere that he went in this place. So he knows this history and he says, I'm going to live in luxury. And he builds this enormous thing and it's just incredible. And he had, um, he had hot baths. I think we have a picture of a hot bath. Put that up there. Now, this is a walkway that you can actually still tour it to this day. But if you see over the side, hot baths on the top of this place out in the wilderness. He had cold baths. He had swimming pools built on the top of this. He lived in luxury there. Now, the problem is there's no rain. Hadn't been any rain in this wilderness area in 700 years whenever Herod built this palace on the top place. So what do you do if there's no water and you have hot baths and you have cold baths and you have swimming pools and you have all of these things? What do you do? Well... In the valley uh, around Jerusalem, there were all of these... They, it was on a mountain and it was all these valleys. And it would, where would you expect rainfall to go when it rains in the mountains? Down. Okay. So if you need water where there's no water, what do you do? It's only logical. You reroute all of the canyons so that all of the water for 17 miles runs to the base of Masada. I mean, this is what Herod did. He was an unbelievable genius for his time. And he built these enormous cisterns. Put that picture up there of the cistern. Enormous cisterns at the base. He, it, it is said that he could collect enough water in one rainfall to sustain 10,000 people for 10 years. That's a lot of water. 
And then you have all kinds of servants taking it up to the top and, and making this place incredible. 2,000 years ago, this guy was ahead of his time when it came to construction, figuring out how to build stuff. And I so wish he was in charge of building the loop around Palestine. <laughs> Did y'all see in the paper that the company went bankrupt? I mean, we kept driving going, there's nobody working here. And finally, they went bankrupt. I'm going, where's Herod when you need him? He would not have run out of money. He would have killed some people. Maybe we don't need that. But if you're just a human king and your ego is huge, doesn't it make sense that you would want to have palaces? You would want to have tributes to yourself and you would want human beings to say, there's a great king, right? That makes sense. So this is how Herod, this is what human kings do. Now, in this line of thinking, Herod decided he wanted to build a Greek city along the coast. Here's a picture of Caesarea. Now, you're pretty smart. If it's Caesarea, who's it named after? Caesar, because he wants Caesar to like him more. Now, the problem was when Herod started, this was swampland. Nobody in their right mind would have built anything here because it was a swamp. So if you're Herod and you got a swamp, but you want to build a port city there, what do you do? You drain the swamp. This guy poured concrete 80 feet below the surface here, 100 feet wide, and made man-made breakers so that they could have a nice port city here called it Caesarea. And uh, this is remarkable because at the time he did this, the largest port harbor in the world was 60 acres. So if you're Herod and the biggest port city in the world is 60 acres, what do you do? You make yours 10 times bigger. It was almost 600 acres. And he built this and he named it Caesarea. So he has this unbelievable ability to build things and and make tributes. and, And then, you know... Since this was swampland, there wasn't any fresh water there. And if you're going to have a big city called Caesarea, you probably need some fresh water. So what do you do? You build an aqueduct 19 miles long from where the freshwater springs are. Here's the aqueduct. And if you know anything about construction, this is remarkable. To this day, it is said that in 19 miles, it's less than a centimeter off. Every uh, meter, it would drop one centimeter. And in 19 miles, it's less than... That's pretty impressive, isn't it, Chad? Wouldn't you like to build? I, I built some stuff. My stuff is not quite that square or plumb. Everything he did was huge. One historian said that he built a huge stadium. We got a couple of pictures of this. Here's some ruins of this stadium. The top part is no longer there, but they discovered these ruins, and uh, it was the Hippodrome. And there's bleacher seats and all of that kind of stuff in there. I think we have one more picture, to, Miriam. So you can see the ruins of the lower section. So far, they've they've excavated about 350,000 seats that they think were there at one point. They're they're estimating it may have been as big as 500,000 seats, 500,000 people could put in there, you could put in there. One lap around the inside was 1.3 miles. You think Jerry Jones Stadium is big? 2,000 years ago, Herod outdid him. Everything he did was huge. Now, let me just pause and ask you a question. If you were keeping score 2,000 years ago, and you got Herod, <laughs> and, and he's building all of this massive stuff, but, and he's large and in charge. And then you hear about a baby born to a woman who, who really was scandalous. She got pregnant before she was married. And, he, and Joseph marries her anyway, and this baby's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a little bitty town. It wasn't a big old place. It was on the outskirts. It was this little... And you hear about this baby being born. Who do you think wins? Who do you think is king? If you're merely human and you're looking at it, who's king? 
Herod is king. But we know better, right? We never get caught up in human kingdoms, do we? No. Who's this dude? Put that next picture up there, Miriam. Would you say he has a kingdom? Yeah. Let's put this one up. Who's the next one? Mother Teresa. So uh, whose life was better? Brad Pitt's or Mother Teresa's? She lived in poverty. She would, she would tell people with, if there were dying babies or, or dying folks, she would hold them while they would die. A volunteer went there one time and the, and the baby had some incurable disease. And, and she said, what can I do? And she said, love this baby until she dies. And the volunteer said, she put her in my arms and I loved that baby for the few seconds she was alive and she died because of some incredible disease. Who had, who had the better life? And, you know, I'm sure if, if you ask the normal people on the straight, street, who has a better life, Brad Pitt or Mother Teresa, who are they going to say? Brad Pitt. It depends on who your king is. Whose life was better, Herod's or Jesus? By human standards, Herod's. Again, it depends on who you worship. Who's, whose life had the greater impact, Herod's or Jesus? Yeah. When you have the right king, your life has meaning. It has purpose. And your influence actually carries beyond the grave. So my question to you, to you today is, who is your king? You have a driving force in your life right now. And the definition of drive is this. To guide, control, or direct. There is something guiding, controlling, or directing your life right now. And my question to you is, what is it? Whatever's driving your life is your king. Maybe money, it may be popularity, maybe what other people think about you, maybe drugs. I don't know what's driving your life, but whatever it is, is your king. And the Bible says that if anything or anyone other than Christ is driving your life is your king, that's idolatry. That's sin. And this is huge because your king will determine your legacy. Who was Herod's king? Not Caesar. He paid homage to him, but in Herod's mind, who was king? Herod. That's exactly right. What kind of legacy did Herod leave? Would you even know about his name if we didn't read about it in Scripture? Of the things I showed you today that, that he built, how many things are left? They're in ruins, right? That's his legacy. Well... Let me tell you a little bit about his family life. He had 11 wives and 43 children. One time he became suspicious of one of his wives. So when he went on a trip, he told one of his assistants, if I happen to die on this trip, execute my wife because I don't like her. While he was gone, the assistant told his wife. And so when Herod comes back, she's noticeably cool towards Herod because he was going to have her executed. So he had her executed anyway. Second wife. He killed her because he became suspicious that she might be conspiring against his kingdom. She killed her. She killed her grand, he killed her grandfather, her brother, and her mother. All killed. He became suspicious of one of his sons. You sensing a theme here? <coughs> when you build earthly kingdoms, you feel you have to defend them. <coughs> he thought this son wanted his throne, so what do you think he had to, done to him? Killed him. Two other sons, he suspected, were... Conspiring for his throne. So this time he decides to have this public inquiry and he brings the two sons in and he allows them to give their testimony, allows them to, to plead their case. He has a historian there writing everything down. And the, in, the historian, if you read it, he says, they say, we didn't do it. We don't want your kingdom. Please give us our lives. He killed him. 
This is, a, this is a nice guy. In fact, Caesar was quoted to have said, it is better to be one of Herod's pets than one of his children. Caesar said that. One time he had a dispute with the most esteemed Jewish religious leaders around. You know what he had done to them? He killed them. Shortly before his death, he began to realize that his legacy was not that great. He began to realize that nobody liked him. And so he thought, when I die, no one's going to mourn. So he came up with this great idea. The Hippodrome that I showed you, he said, fill the Hippodrome with all of the religious leaders of Israel. And at the moment of my death, I want you to kill everybody in the Hippodrome so there will be weeping and mourning at the time of my death. Fortunately, they didn't follow that. That's Herod's kingdom. That's his legacy. He controlled the religious system, the political system, the economic system. He was large and in charge. Everything he did was huge. He liked the finest things. He lived in palaces. He had multiple palaces around his kingdom. Today we would say that in his kingdom there was much blingdom. Now, into this kind of political, economic, religious, social system, a baby is born. If you have your Bibles, let's look at Matthew's Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Does that give those words a little bit clearer meaning when you've heard the background of Herod? Because how many times have you read the Christmas story and read, Oh, Herod. Yeah, he was king. Now you know what he was like. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And King Herod was what? Deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Why is Herod disturbed? He's a paranoid idiot anyway. And now wise guys from another land come and say, Hey, the true king of the Jews. Because Herod knows he's not full Jew. He knows the, Herods hate, uh, the Jews hate him. He knows all of this. And then someone comes and says, we want to worship the true king of the Jews. And it messed him up. But, but why was Jerusalem messed up over this? Because who was their king? Herod. And in Herod's economic system, the rich got rich, richer and the poor got poorer as they thought it should be. And so if something happens to your king, your sugar daddy, what's going to happen to you? All of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now, these wise guys show up, and, and if you remember last week, we talked about there was a comet. 44 B.C., um, C, uh, Julius Caesar was killed by Brutus, and then later, there was this comet that goes through the sky, and later they look back on this and they say, oh, well, that comet, now we realize that was, that was the, the gods, Zeus, lowercase g, that was the gods taking Julius Caesar up to the right hand of the throne of his father, Zeus. So they made up this story about this comet that, oh, Julius really was what he was a, a son of God. He must be a God himself. And so later Caesar Augustus says, well, if my uncle, who he called him father, if he is a God, that must make me the son of God. Into this type of setting, some guys from the east show up and say, well, we saw this star and it led us to the true king. These guys didn't know Jesus. They didn't know anything about him. So this was... This was someone coming on their own and saying, there is a king that's been born and we want to worship him. No self-promotion whatsoever. Complete strangers recognizing that something extraordinary was going on in the heavens. A new kind of kingdom was beginning. And they came to worship the new king. 
And if a true king was being born, what did that mean to the kingdom of Herod? It was coming to an end. This, the birth of this baby really threatened everything. Continuing in verse 4, Matthew chapter 2. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, from what I've told you today, do you think that Herod was sincere in wanting to worship this child or was he full of crap? Just check it. Look what it says in verse 9. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. And do you remember the story? you remember what Herod did? When he realized he'd been tricked by the wise men that they didn't come back, you remember what he did? He determined that it was a certain amount of time and he sent his butchers to Bethlehem to murder all of the baby boys two years old and under because that was the time he'd figured out from the wise men. And of course, Jesus was was delivered because an angel told Joseph to move him. And so all of this stuff, if you look back at the Old Testament, you see the prophecy you see all of these major prophecies that, that Jesus fulfilled from, from Bethlehem. And then later he's from Nazareth. He has to run to Egypt to get away from, um, from Herod. And the, the prophecies even say he'll be coming out of Egypt. All of this stuff pointed to the fact that Jesus was this king. So Matthew begins the story with Herod is king. He's confronting the reader with the issue, with this question. Who is your king? Is it Herod? Is, is power and wealth your king? Maybe possessions or influence or statues are king. Surely a collection of palaces around the land proves that you are king, right? And then this baby's born and he messes everything up. He changes all the rules. And people start to talk about this new kind of king. And you got to ask yourself, do you want Herod to be king or is it time for something new? If you're living at that time. He brings a new kind of kingdom. Kingdom, not where they run around with the, the biggest military, but where they run around and they love each other. Remember, we read this last week. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. And any place the followers of Christ have done what Christ did, lives are changed, kingdoms are changed. Thrones have a new king because people give up what they've been grasping and they turn to a new king. And then we're told that the announcement of Jesus' birth wasn't in one of these palaces. There wasn't a big old news conference where everybody was covering it. Who were the first people to hear about the new king? Shepherds. Stinky, stupid shepherds. That's how they looked at them. They were the, this was the lowest job in society. According to everybody that wasn't a Jew. And the angel goes out and talks to shepherds. Why? Because God wants ordinary people to know you matter. It's not just the rich and the powerful. 
Jesus came for ordinary people. Max Licato tells a story about a small cathedral outside of Bethlehem. It marks the supposed birthplace of Jesus. He says, behind the high altar in the church, so you go in through this tour, you go back behind the altar, there's a cave and a little cavern lit by silver lamps. You can go through the main entrance and admire the ancient church. You can also enter the quiet cave where a star embedded in the floor recognizes the birth of the king. There's one stipulation, however. You have to stoop. The door going into the cave is so low that you must bow to go through it. Then Max says, the same is true of the Christ. You can see the world standing tall, but to witness the Savior, you have to get on your knees. Proud people don't see Jesus. Humble people do. So it's time to make your choice. Who is your king? God knew that all the Herods of this world would eventually fall. Their kingdoms would be in ruins. We saw that in the pictures earlier of Herod's kingdom. All that is left is ruins. It's what happened to any type of human king who tries to rule in a human way. But what happens to the Christmas story? It keeps going on and on and on and on. Energizer Bunny's got nothing on Jesus. Every year we talk about the Christmas story. So who is your king? Would you bow your heads for just a moment? You've got to choose this very wisely, your king. Because your legacy rides upon this choice. So I asked you last week, who's your Lord? This week, who's your king? What is it that's driving your life? If I were to poll the people in your family, what is the most important thing to your life? Your kids, your spouse could tell me. I have a feeling that for at least some of us, it's not the kingdom of God. I want you just, while you're sitting there, to, to tell God whatever it is that is number one that you've been pursuing that's driving your life. He already knows it. He's waiting on you to confess it. What's driving your life right now? Just tell Him silently. Now, if you're ready for a new king, I want you to pray this silently. God, please forgive me for worshiping anything but you. Would you become the ruler and the king of my life? As best I know how. I give up everything to you today. I surrender it all. And I ask you to lead me and help me to grow to be more like your son. Just a minute, I'm going to have you write on your registration cards. If that's the first time you've ever done that, I would, I'd like to know that. And if you've been putting anything else before Christ, you can, you can just say, I've come back today. Father, we just pray that, that we would live like there is a new kingdom. And not like Herod's are still in charge but that the baby didn't stay a baby. He grew up and he changed things. And then he died to pave a way for us to get into heaven. And I thank you that he's no longer in the grave, but he rose again. And because of that sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ, and because of surrendering to it, he is now my king. And I'm adopted into the family of God. 
It's my prayer that everyone here could be adopted into that family as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your registration cards, if you would, fill those out. And on the back, if you have had anything other than Christ as your king over the last week to 10 days, month, then I want you to write. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to write, I'm coming back. If there's something that you're really struggling with, write that down too. I'll, I'll pray for you. If you want to talk about that, we can get together sometime this week and talk. If there are prayer concerns, please put that on your card as well because I go through those several times and I pray. And uh, if you have, this is the cool thing. If you have a praise, if God's answered one of your prayers, write that on there. That's pretty cool to hear what God's doing in your life. We have three baskets at the back. One is our joy basket. All of our church members, regular attenders, you are expected to give. Um, if you're a guest, we never ask for your money. If, and we're going to define this. We, we said maybe we need to start defining this. If you're a guest who's been here more than five or six times, you're no longer a guest. You're a regular attender. <laughs> you're sloughing off. Um, walk in the check or something like that. So, um, it, But if you're a guest, we want you to come and we don't ever want you to feel pressured about money. That's why we give sacrificially. There are people in this church that give way over 10% to the kingdom of God because they believe this stuff is real. They believe that this Bible has the answers to life, that it's God's roadmap. And we'll continue to do that as long as there is somebody in Palestine or within driving distance who needs to hear that message. We'll continue to give as long as we have breath so that you can hear that and your friends can hear that. The second basket we have back there is a registration card basket. If you have prayer concerns, whatever, put that in there. If you would like for me to contact you, put that in there as well. I don't know um, if this is happening around you, but around me, marriages are falling apart. I'm, I'm doing so much marriage counseling right now, individual counseling. It is unbelievable how the enemy seems to attack at this time of year. And so I need your prayers as well. And um, people in your family need prayers because the enemy wants to destroy families. Third basket back there is what we call our bagel basket. That's building a great life. All the money that goes in there goes to help us pay off debt. We believe that we're supposed to expand this facility in the near future and we want to be out of debt and we want to do that debt-free. We want to be weird. By the way, in January, we're starting a new series called Weird and uh, we are looking forward to some videos that we're going to show you for that. But anyway, we'll get that in January. All right, so today, I think like three of us are dumb enough to ride on the motorcycle ride, right? I came today in all of my hunting gear and I actually had battery-powered socks on because it was 37 degrees when I left my house. But I am hardcore motorcycle club. Rest of you are sissies if you're not going. I'm kidding. Um, so tonight we have Celebrate Recovery and then... Um, party. It's a party. It's a Christmas party tonight for Celebrate Recovery. Never been? You're interested? Come tonight. It'd be a great time to get to know some people. You are dismissed. <laughs>